Contra is Contra is nuanced. Contra, Contra is, is transgressive. Good trouble. Contra, Contra is, is collaborative. Contra is a podcast. Is a space for thinking about design critically. Contra is subversive. Contra is texture. You are listening to Solidarity Chats, a special section of the Contra podcast on disability, design justice, and the life world. These episodes, recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, focus on disability, eugenics, and mutual aid. We're hoping to capture some of the conversations that disabled people and our allies are having about issues such as healthcare infrastructure, medical triage, eugenics, and technology as it is unevenly distributed across the population. These episodes are also going to come out at a different rate than the regular Contra episodes, so please make sure to subscribe on Google, Apple, or Stitcher so that you don't miss any. I'm so thrilled to be here with Michelle Murphy, who is a professor of history and women's and gender studies and the director of the Technoscience Research Unit at the University of Toronto. Michelle is one of my favorite feminist scholars and someone who I've learned a lot from um, from her work, especially about histories of eugenics and technoscience and feminist politics. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the podcast and uh, mutually fanning you. So how wonderful that uh, we're brought together in this strange way on Zoom in these conditions to share our thoughts together. Yeah, it's such an honor to talk to you. Um, and uh, I wish it was under better conditions, but here we are. This is the world that we're in. Um, so there are uh, a few pieces of writing that you have done that have been on my mind a lot lately. Um, as you know, things have happened in the news, as the pandemic has been unfolding, um, and also as I think about how uh, we are maybe in a place that um, is not as novel as it seems, and maybe there are ways to find our way out of it. So the first is your book, The Economization of Life, which I believe came out in 2017 um, from Duke University Press. Yep. And this is a book where you offer a history of the concepts of economy and population in a very provocative way. So would you like to say a little bit about the key arguments in that book? Yeah, so... Um that book started with me looking at the history of uh, feminist reproductive uh, projects and looking at how those projects were battling something gigantic and wanting to figure out what was the thing they were battling in the, in the 60s and the 70s, which was population control. Uh, and as I began to research that, I really uh, came to understand and see that population control wasn't just about um, controlling birth rates. It was a project that was deeply tied to changing nation-state governance to being oriented to prioritizing their national economies 
and to govern life, whether it be health, whether it be birth rates, whether it be famines and food, for the sake of that national economy, usually measured with GDP. And so the book is about that history. It's about the, the rise of the national economy or macro economy as measured by GDP and all the, the ways that, um, that that's been attached to projects um, that are eugenic, that are racist, for saying some lives are more productive than others, some lives are more worth being born, some lives are um, worth letting die and are more valuable dead. Um, and, uh, you know, in doing the work, um, you know, we're used to eugenics often being announced as a kind of like a really direct sentence, you know, or a direct statement about um, this particular body or this particular life is abnormal or devalued. And, you know, what, uh, I, um, the research kind of led me to think about was how that logic became dispersed and built into our very infrastructures of governance, of quantification, of calculation, of how we build hospitals, how we build roads, how we organize um, toilets, uh, all sorts of, you know, sanitation, all sorts of infrastructures of um, that we rely on all our life supports, in particularly in relationship to the state, have been built relative to calculations about how they can create economic productivity and which lives are worth propping up, and then what other things are worth propping up, like um, a corporation, um, a corporate profits over, let's say, human lives. Um, and so sometimes that eugenic form that we're used to seeing as a direct racist statement or a ableist statement, um, you know, like uh, about the delivery of, let's say, services or care, gets um, extended into the material forms of the infrastructures we live in and into all sorts of statements that seem like they're neutral and acceptable to say with numbers <laughs> um, that are, um, in fact, quite deadly and carry carry that eugenics logic in them so that was that's what that kind of economization is about um and then the resistance to that one of the um things that immediately came to mind about your book when i was reading the news about um just all sorts of triage decisions and also policy decisions being made about uh in the name of the economy essentially um so decisions about who had to work and who um, didn't have to work, or decisions about whose life ought to be saved. Um, and you have this great point about the economy as a phantasmagoria. Am I saying that right? Phantasmograms. Phantasmogram, yeah. Um, and, uh, and that has been really helpful for me to think through what this thing called the economy is that we're invoking. So could you just like explain that argument a little bit more? Yeah. So... Um... Now, just to go back a bit, you know, the, we didn't always live in nation states that imagine themselves to have economies. So, you know, if we even look at that history, the nation state as a kind of universal form that's supposed to kind of territorialize the entire planet is only so, so old. It really, if we look, look at when kind of the entire planet gets called into the kind of, um, purported norm of having an, of a nation state, it's really a, in the moment of mid-century decolonization. 
So that's like there's people we, we, that we all know who were around then. And then that project became also the project that each of those nation states had to have an economy, had to build these apparatuses, right, to then decide what activities count towards um, measuring the economy of a nation. Well, probably, you know, everyone listening won't be surprised to hear, okay, what counts? What a factory does, what a construction site does, what a mining operation does, what a oil company does counts. What doesn't count? Our mutual aid for one another, growing food and caring for one another, um, any kind of labor that happens in the household, um, many kinds of healthcare labors, caring for the land. Um, all of that purposely gets left out of the calculation of, of economy. So then we have then the building of infrastructures by nation states that um, you know want to value some kinds of things versus others, like you know building pipelines here in Canada, mm. um, or in the in the United States, you know having keeping the construction sites open. So that it's a whole uh, history, and that history of deciding what counts towards the economy is you know built into statistical apparatuses of the states, forms of accounting when you fill out your taxes all sorts of kind of quantitative practices and then like add up to then allow someone like Trump to feel, you know, to feel like he's got a, a whole kind of world behind him of numbers, of macro economy, of nation states that legitimates in his mind and, and his cohort uh, decisions that say um, we must keep these kinds of economic activities going for the sake of the economy. Mm -hmm. um, as that being the number one priority. Um, and so we see that over and over. So we have like a kind of double devaluing. We have the devaluing of that which doesn't count towards the economy, all the mutual care we're all doing right now. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, we have the devaluing of particular laborers, right, who are um, uh, put to sacrifice for the sake of the economy. The measure of the economy is always not what the so much what the laborer makes, but what the corporation profits, right? right? So in the end, um, there's a tremendous amount of, you know, what we could call disposable um, life or that life that's designated as disposable or that which um, is understood to lose value for the sake of the economy um, all around us right now. And what's so perverse and disturbing is to see major public figures say those kinds of statements in the most bald, horrific, and violent ways right now, where they're just incredibly ex explicit as opposed to more surreptitious, which is what we're used to, um, about saying, let's just let people die, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so those, you know, when we see those kinds of statements or hear them, um, or uh, encounter them, they do feel like abhorrent and like kind of out of the norm, but they're in a way they're like a, a saying out loud of something that has been built into our governance systems for a long time. Um, and we're also kind of seeing it here, let's say domestically in the United States or in Canada being spoken in a way where if you look at development language, foreign aid policy, military policy, those kinds of statements are par for the course um, in those spaces by, um, you know, U.S. government officials and in the documents and in the way of calculation. So it doesn't come from nowhere, right? Yeah. We can, we can um, 
you know, think of many histories, right? We could go back to slavery. We can go back to settler colonialism and indigenous elimination. You know, this, these deep, deep histories, right, of um, that which can't be killed for the prosperity of others or the future prosperity of others. Um, and so, you know, it, it is very, very deep when we hear it. It doesn't make it any less horrific um, that it's happening now. Yeah, I think this is really important because it helps us to understand um, that eugenics is enacted not often explicitly in eugenicist terms and what appear to be eugenicist projects. It's often enacted through ideas about health and contribution to society and um, kind of like value in terms of you know, in a way, labor value, but labor value to corporations and to the broader economy. Um, and this is something that, you know, disability bioethicists and activists have been making arguments along similar lines for a long time that eugenics mm-hmm. didn't stop with uh, the end of sterilization, which of course is still an ongoing phenomenon in many places too, um, but that there are these very insidious ways in which it basically exists in all of these calculative logics. And the legal scholar Sam Bagenstoss wrote this great article recently about how even, you know, the deaths due to the coronavirus are due to a lack of infrastructure, but this is called scarcity in a neoliberal economy in which it is normalized that um, in the United States that your healthcare access should be tied to your employment and it shouldn't be a public amenity. Um, And so the fact that we don't have enough hospitals and ventilators and stuff isn't just a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's directly tied to calculations about how many people ought to be kept alive and what vulnerabilities exist. So um, at the end of Economization of Life, you start to talk about this concept that now um, you are focusing on in your work, which is alter life. Um, and uh, I think that this is amazing and something that everyone needs to know more about. Do you want to talk more about alter life? Maybe I can say how we get from one thing to the other, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, you know, I think you make such a good point thinking about um, the connections between thinking about a common economization and the kinds of, you know, arguments people um, in, in kind of crip worlds, crip, crip activism, crip studies have been making about infrastructures and their non-neutrality and that they're achievements, right? They're not accidents. They're not broken things. And we can, we can see that all over, that these lacks, these um, abandonments are, when we do the history of them, um, their achievements. So we can begin to think about how these, you know, we, we, I think, have a lot to pull on to understand how these infrastructures make some forms of life possible, let's say, like oil extractive fossil capitalism um, and other forms of life just very difficult to um, continue. And so uh, out of that work, um, I came to really want to think about reproduction, not as something that happens in our body, not as something that happens in the households we're being asked to shelter in, um, but something that's um, distributed in infrastructures and our supports, in our not just our mutual aids, but in the ways we build our architectures, our cities, our technologies across bodies. Um, of course, that's a kind of Marxist feminist tradition mm-hmm. in a way to see like reproduction in that way, um, this distributed reproduction. And so out of that, um, 
you know, I began to really want to think about uh, this condition of being not just our lives made possible or impossible or difficult or supported in these infrastructures, but the way we're also put in relationships of co-constitution through that. We are really co-constituting one another. And we live in these conditions where we're not sovereign bodies, where, where lives that are co-constituted and in a state of being altered mm -hmm. by these conditions and one another. And so, um, so that's why I wanted to think about, you know, what I've been calling alter life, which is this condition of being already altered infrastructurally, extensively with one another, but also this capacity to become something else. Like it's not over. We're not mm. just altered, but we get to keep working on this with one another. And um, yeah, I, I, you know, with the COVID-19, of course, we're in a profound co-constitution right where we are um being um confronted with seeing each other as potentially harmful in our contact with one another right and endangerment to one another in our intimacies and it really brings home um this project or this this i guess political life community project of what does it mean to co-constitute one another how to do that in a loving way when we're also in in a way constitutively caught in violences that we might be doing to one another just because of the world we're we're living in and so that's that's a hard one mm -hmm. you know um and so i all you know i think about that in relationship more to you know chemical exposures and the relationship between colonialism and pollution here where i live in toronto in the great lakes and trying to do it through, you know, an indigenous feminist science studies form. But um, it's obviously much bigger than that. And I think it's something like I, I'm, um, you know, almost like I think we, maybe we're all kind of struggling with it like all day long right now, mm. right? What does it mean? How do we figure out how to kind of co-constitute co one another, right, in this moment when our very contacts um, carry both maybe care and love and support, but also potential harm. How do we, how do we do, what do we do with that? Mm. Yeah. The, there's this line, um, I can't remember now if this is in your ultra life piece that's in cultural anthropology or in Catalyst, um, but about how, you know, apocalypses are not just these one-time events, they're ongoing. And I've been thinking about that so much as, mm -hmm. you know, I have and many other people have been like, the apocalypse has now arrived and what are we doing and how do we organize and build solidarity and stuff. Um, but you remind us that um, this kind of like massive scale uh, vulnerability and threat to life is not unique to this moment. And I just wonder if you could say more about that and how ultra life may give us a way to think past this or in a yeah. different way uh that, that's a that's that's beautiful um so i mean i think for many of us right we already feel we live in hostile worlds we might feel we are intergenerationally uh survivors of hostile worlds and we already have tremendous legacies of kind of alter world making 
for living in hostile worlds, right? Worlds that aren't built to support us. And, um, and so in that way, you know, the apocalypse is not at all new. And, um, you know, we were kind of reflecting before we started this podcast on uh, mutual aid right now and how, um, what a kind of shift it is to see very normative media and newspapers and maybe like colleagues at university delighting and getting excited about, you know, mutual forms of mutual aid and creating this kind of community. And, um, and that for some of us, we live in deep, thick worlds that have already been doing this work for a long time. And um, we, we live in vectors of, of mutual support and aid and, and live in this altar-wise way of existing in, in, in um, hostile worlds. And it's not just between ourselves and our bodies, but like it's almost like a terraforming project, right? Like we're kind of making worlds in, in you know, the world of many worlds. And we're doing that together in these different kind of vectors. And, you know, that's the... Um, like the strange beauty of this moment, you know, even in, in, you know, the difficulty and challenge and grief of it as well. Um, as we see some things coming apart, um, there is this m strange and disturbing moment of um, the something else that we've already been working on uh, kind of thickening. Right mm -hmm. and coming in, coming up together and 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 being more legitimated and valued and more people wanting to get in on it and that kind of um, you know helps you get through the day. Yeah, absolutely. It's a theory of change, you know, that where you start with a theory of changes in these kind of worldings that we do with one another and kind of step by step not waiting for the better conditions to arrive because they're not going to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Thank you so much for giving language to that. I, I feel like I really um, needed to hear everything you just said. So amazing. What are some ways that um, folks who are listening to this or reading the transcript can be in solidarity with the projects that you're working on right now? Mm -hmm. hmm, that's an interesting question. Well, um, so the main thing that we're doing right now at uh, the Technoscience Research Unit, besides our own kind of mutual aids with one another, is um, we predominantly have been working on a part of Ontario called Chemical Valley, where 40% of Canada's petrochemicals are refined, and it's on the territory of Amjanong First Nation. And our group is a indigenous majority, indigenous-led group of university people and community people working on this question. And right now, um, as all this is happening, um, you know, the other thing that's happening is, for example, the EPA is deciding in the states they're not going to enforce any more environmental regulations. Um, we're just beginning to see that unfold in Canada, in the, in the province of Alberta. They've now declared that environmental regulations are not going to be enforced. We're seeing, um, as the price of oil drops, we're seeing um, these companies um, delaying maintenance um, on their facilities. And so people who live really close to these facilities are an increasing kind of danger of accidents. We see 
you know, the wanting to bail out the oil industry over people um, and so on. And so I think one of the things to, you know, in terms of being in solidarity is, you know, to notice that in this moment, um, there are big grabs happening by the oil and gas industry um, that have deadly consequence for not only people living proximate to those refineries, but for things like climate change and so on. And, um, you know, th that kind of solidarity with indigenous communities here in Canada or, you know, communities of color and poor communities in the United States who, who bear the bodily burdens of that violence, um, constitutively, that solidarity um, doesn't just happen at a standing rock moment, right? It's, it's, it has to be part of our vision, you know, of uh, mutual care. And so that's one of the reasons I love this conversation. I think that the kind of work we're doing and the kind of, you know, crypt techno science work that you do, it actually has tremendous um, solidarity mm. uh, potential um, to learn from one another and to pay attention to what each other is doing. Yeah. So that's kind of what I can think of. Yeah, that's great. Um, and thank you too for kind of the reminder that in uh, in the midst of this pandemic that all of those extractive industries and the harm that they're causing and the resistance against them hasn't stopped. And so um, all the things that we were working for and against before still need to be at the forefront. Um, and even as we're distant from each other, so mm -hmm. um, this has been so wonderful, Michelle. Thank you so much for your words and your wisdom. Is there any other stuff that you want to say? I guess I want to say my gratitude to you and the communities you've been building online and through this podcast and your own work. And um, I'm grateful to be folded into that. Thank you. It's really great to be in community with you and to learn from you. You've been listening to Contra, a podcast about disability, design justice, and the life world. Contra is a production of the Critical Design Lab. Learn more about our projects at mapping-access.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. If you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. The Contra podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial, share-alike, international 3.0 license. That means you can remix, repost, or recycle any of the content as long as you cite the original source, aren't making money, you don't change the credits, and you share it under the same license.